narrative of Exodus. Uh, obviously, last week was Resurrection Sunday, and we celebrated and took a break from the Exodus, but we are right back into it this week. We're going to be in chapter 6. If you would read along with me, chapter 6, starting verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they have lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard their groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God Almighty, God, I pray As we go over this important text this morning, Lord, this poem that you spoke to Moses, this encouragement that you gave to him in a dark place, that we are motivated by your glory. That we live for your namesake, not ours. That we understand the great freedom and love you poured out on us in our salvation. that we live and trust and faith in you, Lord. Be with us this morning as we examine this portion of Scripture. Pray that you are glorified in your Son's name. Amen. Again, two weeks ago, we left Moses in chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, in a very dark place, a dark valley, discouraged. He was alone. Israel, the people he's trying to help, have turned on him. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at this time, was determined to stop Israel from leaving Egypt and to stop Moses and his purposes, even using brutal tactics as we see the slavery and the harsh labor getting worse for the Israelites. And probably it's safe to assume the most powerful man in the world wanted Moses dead. Moses has found himself in an impossible situation and Moses does do one thing right and that is cry out to the Lord in prayer. We looked two weeks ago and examined Moses' prayer. Within his prayer, he questions God's love and wisdom. He first questions God's love by saying, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? He questions God's wisdom by asking Why did you ever send me? And then he ends this prayer with the accusation. He says, You have not delivered your people 
at all. And that's how chapter 5 ends. Moses saying, you have not delivered your people at all. You have not kept your promise, in other words. It's been 400 years in Egypt. You made a covenant. You made a, a promise. Chapter 5 ends with this prayer, Moses in a dark place. And chapter 6 starts with encouragement. God, once again, encourages Moses. This time he encourages him with a poem. It's actually a poem spoken from God to Moses, again, which was meant to encourage Moses. And so I have four points of the sermon this morning. The context of this poem, the historical part of this poem, the predictive part of this poem, and the purpose of this poem. So let's just jump right into it and start with the context of this poem. Again, Moses is in this dark place in chapter 5. He prays to God, and chapter 6 is really an answer to Moses' prayer, a response a response to Moses' prayer. If you look at verse 1, it says this, But the Lord said to Moses, Now. I want you to pay attention to that word, now. Now. Verse 1, again, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now. That word now implies that everything has taken its proper course. Everything is going to plan. Nothing is outside of God's sovereign control in this situation. Now, now it's time. Listen, God always planned for Israel to be in slavery in, in Egypt. In fact, he told this to Abraham well before Israel was ever a nation. In Genesis fifteen thirteen, it says this, Know for certain, this is going to happen in other words, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own, not theirs, and will be servants there. In other words, slaves. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. God always planned to harden Pharaoh's heart. He told Moses this in Exodus 4.21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. He even told this in Exodus 3.19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. He will only let the Israelites go after being compelled by the mighty hand. Now, now it's time. Listen, God never intended to save Israel through Israel's strength. He never intended to save Israel through Moses' persuasive speech or strong leadership. He never intended to save Israel because of Pharaoh's generosity. It was always going to be salvation through a strong hand. And now it's time. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. God is about to display his glory with a strong hand. And this strong hand will be one of the greatest displays of God's sovereignty God's power, God's justice that the world has ever seen. 
In other words, God has put together a situation, really a showdown, as we've said, between Pharaoh and Yahweh to see who truly is Lord over Israel. Where God will be able to reveal his character through the showdown. Reveal what it means that he is Yahweh. Reveal his name. Now, it's time. Again, that word now is important. God is telling Moses it's time. Everything that has happened up to this point is all under God's plan. Verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Again, he won't just let the Israelites go. By the time God is done with him, God will use his strong hand. Pharaoh will use his might to just get him out. (laughs) That's what verse 1 is saying. God is encouraging Moses here. He's answering his prayer. And look at verse 2 again. Verse 2 starts a poem. God spoke to Moses and said to him, he starts a poem. This is an encouragement from God to Moses. I'm going to just read this one more time. Listen to the words and see if you can spot out some of the poetic parts of this um, the speech that is given to Moses. Verse 2 again, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am. And the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Again, verses 2 through 8. It's a poem. It's an oracle from God to Moses to encourage him, and it's spoken poetically make a couple of observations before we dive into this poem. First, this poem's about the name of the Lord. I hope you saw that. Look at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, this is how the poem starts, I am the Lord. Now look at the very end, the very end of verse 8. This is how the poem ends. I am the Lord. This poem starts and ends with the phrase, I am the Lord. And of course, The word Lord there is all caps, meaning this poem starts and ends with the name of God, Yahweh. I am Yahweh. God is revealing his name in this poem. Revealing what it means that he is Yahweh. And this fits Exodus because I've been saying the book of Exodus is all about the name of the Lord. God's revealing his name throughout this whole book what it means that he is Yahweh. This leads me to my second observation of this poem. 
there's two main parts of this poem. The historical part, what has happened, and the predictive part, what is about to happen, what will happen. The first part is the historic part, and that's verses 2 through 5. Verse 3 says this, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Past tense, I appeared. Verse 4 says, I also established, again, past tense, I established my covenant with them. Verse 5, moreover, I have heard, past tense, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel. This is the historical part of the poem, which leads to the the predictive part, which is verses 6 through 8. In verses 6 through 8, we see seven I wills. I will, right? Look at verse 6. It starts, I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give. I will give it to you for a possession. There's two parts of this poem, the historical part and the predictive part. Both parts are revealing the name of the Lord. God's name is the focus of this whole poem. Yahweh, the name of the Lord. Third observation, each part, first part and the second part, has three stanzas. Six altogether. Three stanzas in the first part, the historical part. I appeared, I established, I have heard. Three stanzas in the predictive part. I will deliver, I will be, or I will take you to be my people. I will bring you into the land. And fourth observation is that this poem is radically God-centered. I hope you see that. The historical part, I did, I did, I did. It's all about what God did. The predictive part, I will do, I will do, I will do. It's all about what God will do. This poem is radically God-centered, and that fits Exodus perfectly. Because Exodus is a God-centered book with a God-centered message that teaches us to have a God-centered life. In fact, the Bible is a God-centered book with a God-centered message that teaches us to have a God-centered life. So that's the context and some observations of this poem. Let's not jump into it. I first want to look at the historic part of this poem. So that brings us to our next point this morning. The historic part. Look at verse 2. It says, As God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Again, this phrase, I am the Lord, is not just the introduction to the poem. It's the introduction to the historical part of this poem. I am Yahweh. It's all about my name. There's three stanzas. It starts with, I am Yahweh. The first stanza is verse 3. It says this, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I appeared as God Almighty in Hebrew. That's El Shaddai. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. There's a lot of debate about what this word or this name or this title, El Shaddai, means, but God Almighty is probably a really good translation. It highlights God's power, his transcendency, sufficiency. 
So look at verse 3 again. It says this, I appeared to, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now this is very interesting for one main reason, that the word Yahweh is used well over a hundred times in the book of Genesis. And it's used by all the fathers. In fact, because of that, there's a lot of debate about verse 3. People say that this is a contradiction to Genesis, and there's all types of crazy theories of what is happening here, that Moses wasn't the true author of Exodus. He didn't know the author of Genesis, what he was saying, and so it doesn't match up. None of that is true, of course. There's a good explanation that goes right along the theme of Exodus to this. But, but just so you see, the name Yahweh was used in Genesis often, well over a hundred times, like I said. A few examples, Genesis 4.26. I mean, way back in the beginning, Adam and Eve had a son, Seth. Right? Verse 26, it says this, To Seth also a son was born, and, called, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, I mean, way in the beginning, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's Yahweh. They began to call upon Yahweh. Genesis 15, 7, it says this, And he, that's God, said to him, that's Abram, right? Abraham, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh. God spoke his name to Abraham. I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land. Not only did God say the word Yahweh, Abraham has said the word Yahweh. Genesis 22.10, it says this, And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the, name, or, but the angel of the Lord, again, that's Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know, for now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. Capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh will provide. It's obvious, obvious Abraham and the patriarchs knew the word Yahweh. They heard it and they even used it. So what does verse 3 mean? I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Here's what it means. Even though they knew the sound Yahweh, in other words, they knew the word Yahweh, God did not reveal its meaning or its significance to them. Verse 3, But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. That word known is important. It's rational, experiential. It's intimate knowledge. They didn't have an intimate knowledge of what Yahweh means, in other words. Verse 3 is saying, God is revealing the meaning of his name in Exodus in a way he never did in the book of Genesis. He's revealing his name to Moses and Israel and to Egypt and to the world and to us who is reading Exodus in an intimate way. So there's three stanzas to this part. The first one, verse 3 again. 
appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. The second stanza is in, is in verse 4. It says this, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. In other words, I made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land, right, the promised land. This, of course, is the Abrahamic covenant. There's three main promises. If you look at the Abrahamic covenant, a great nation that Abraham would have children, they'd have children, they'd have children until, his gener- until they became a great um, nation, that he would have a land and that, that this, gener- or this nation would be a blessing. God is focused on the land here because that's, about, that's a, a, what he's about to do to get Israel out of Egypt and get them into the promised land. God, in other words, is remembering his covenant. He's remembering his promise. Leads to the third stanza, verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Once again, as we've seen since chapter 3, even before chapter 3, God knows the suffering of his people. He's heard their groaning. Even though it was planned, in Genesis 15, 13 makes that very clear, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. It was planned wasn't outside of God's sovereign control. Even though God had a purpose for the suffering so that he would be glorified, so his name would be revealed, he still has compassion for his people. Verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God cares. And he hasn't forgotten his covenant. He says, I have remembered my covenant. You know, that's the main point of this historical part, the first part of this poem, is that God remembers, that God is faithful. And it's an important lesson that I think we can learn from this. Our hope depends upon the belief that God is consistent and faithful. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. In fact, Moses writes in Numbers 23, 19, God is not man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will it not, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Listen to what God says at the very end of this first part, the historical part. I have remembered my covenant. Remember the context of this poem, right? Moses is discouraged. He cries out to God, and he says this in Exodus 5.22, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. God's response is this. I have remembered my covenant. You know, I really think this portion of interaction with Moses 
left an impression on him, especially as we get through what God's about to do in the next couple chapters. Let me just show you what I mean. If you would, turn to Exodus 32. We'll be back in Exodus 6 in a second, but just turn to Exodus 32 real quick. context of this passage, and we're going to spend a lot of time here once we get there. Um, they're in the wilderness, Israel. The exodus has already happened. This is well after this poem has been spoken to, to Moses, and they're at Mount Sinai. Verse 1, chapter 32, verse 1 says this, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has um, become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off, your, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Again, this is a great sin. As we will see, this breaks the first two commandments, the Ten Commandments. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 5, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down and ate and drank and rose up to play. Probably got drunk and threw a big party. Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Verse 10. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. Now, there's a lot here, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this passage when we get here at one point. But I want you to hear Moses' response in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Now listen to verse 13. Remember. See that word? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land 
that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses is pleading with God saying, remember your covenant. Remember your covenant. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now when you read this story, it sounds like God changed his mind. In fact, this passage, as we will see when we get there, has led to a major heresy called open theism, which says that God doesn't know the future. He's just responding to what's happening. But I want to be clear, and we'll tackle that when we get to this passage. I want to be clear, Moses is making an argument from the knowledge that Yahweh is a God that doesn't change his mind. That he's a God who remembers his promises. And the argument worked, verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God is a God who remembers and fulfills his promises. I'll turn back to Exodus 6, verse 6. That is the historic part of this poem and lays the foundation for the next part, which is the predictive part. God is a God that remembers. He's a God that's faithful. In Exodus 6, verse 6, this is starting the predictive part. First part is the historical part, and it ends with God saying, I have remembered my covenant. Now look at the second part, the predictive part. Verse 6 starts this way. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Again, I want you to notice that word, therefore. It's in there on purpose. It connects the first part of this poem with the second part of this poem. God is saying, because, because of all this history, because of the covenant I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because Yahweh means I am a God who keeps my promises, I'm about to act. And he says, I am Yahweh. And the first stanza is found in verse 6. It says this, And I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I'll deliver you from slavery to them, and I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And that's the first stanza. Yahweh will deliver Israel from slavery. The second stanza is found in verse 7. I, again, this is Yahweh, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second stanza is saying that Yahweh will become Israel's God and they will be his people. The third stanza is found in verse 8. I, again this is Yahweh, I will, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord third stanza, Yahweh will give this great possession, the land of Canaan to them, this promised land, this new Eden. And it ends the proclamation, I am Yahweh. And I hope you see that there's four main promises that are made in verses 6 through 8. God is promising liberation. Look at verse 6. I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery. God is promising liberation. God is promising redemption. Again, verse 6. 
I will redeem you. God is promising adoption. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. In other words, I'll adopt you as my own. And finally, God is promising a glorious future. Verse 8, I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. There's four main promises in the second part of this poem. Liberation, redemption, adoption, and a glorious future. God is going to make his name known, in other words, by bringing liberation, redemption, adoption, and a glorious future. That's the will of God. Here's the good news. Jesus came to fulfill the will of God. In fact, Jesus says in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Listen, the book of Exodus, and I hope we see this, is not simply a story of the history of Israel. It's a story that points us forward to a future exodus. It's a story that points us forward to a future salvation. It's a story that points us to Jesus. God's will is to bring liberation in Jesus. Revelations 1.5, to him, that's Jesus, who loves us and has set or has freed us from our sins by his blood. Galatians 5 verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. God's will is to bring redemption in Jesus. Ephesians 1 7, in him, that's Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God's will is to bring adoption through Jesus. Ephesians 1 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In other words, it's God's will that we would be adopted. And lastly, it's God's will that we would have a glorious future in Christ Jesus. A glorious possession. First Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Through Christ, we have liberation, redemption, adoption, and a glorious future. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. It's Jesus. All God's promises from the Old Testament, in other words, are fulfilled in Christ. The will of God is made possible and is fulfilled in Christ. Our salvation is God's will fulfilled in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 again, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
And that brings us to our last point. To God for his glory. And that's the purpose of this poem. The purpose of this poem. Let me ask this question. Who's acting in this poem? It's clear, right? Seven I wills. I. I will. Verses six through eight. Right? Who's acting in verses six through eight? God. Yahweh. Verse six. I am Yahweh and I will. In other words, the action that we've seen throughout this whole poem, the subject of that action is Yahweh. He is acting. Israel is passively receiving. Therefore, the glory goes to God and no one else. One commentary put it this way. These are the seven I wills of salvation in which God proves that he is Lord by saving his people, liberating them, redeeming them, adopting them, and giving them a land to be their very own. Without getting lost in all the details, it is important not to miss the main point, which is that salvation belongs to the Lord. From beginning to end, every aspect of the exodus was accomplished by God and by God alone. God promised to bring his people out of Egypt and to free them from bondage. He promised to take them to himself and make them his own. He promised to give them a land for their possession. God saved the Israelites by his sovereign grace. He did all the saving so that he could keep all the glory. Exodus, again, is a God-centered book. The God-centered message that teaches us to have God-centered lives. Look at verse 7 again. I, I, that's Yahweh, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am saving you, in other words, for my namesake. That you shall know that I am Yahweh, that you shall know what it means that I am Yahweh. Listen, it's all about God's name. It's all about God's glory. And the Bible just makes this so extremely clear. Yeah, I feel like Christians, we miss it. Ezekiel 29 says this, but I acted for the sake of my name. It's talking about Israel. I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations among whom, you, or whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known. How did he make himself known? To them and bringing them, that's Israel, out of the land of Egypt. In other words, I'm bringing Israel out of the land of Egypt to make my name known. That's my motivation. Psalms 106.8, yet he, that's God, saved them, that's Israel, for his namesake. I mean, it just doesn't get clearer than that. That he might make known his mighty power. For Samuel 12, 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not forsake Israel. Why? For his great name's sake. God is gracious for his name's sake. For his glory. The Bible, again, is very clear on this. Even passages we love. How about Psalms 23? He restored my soul. This is David 
He, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Psalms 31.3 For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. That you may be glorified. Psalms 109.21 But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. Psalms 143.11 For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. God is gracious for his glory. He is gracious for his namesake. Isaiah 48, 9. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. They may not cut you off. Then a little later, verse 11, just in case we don't get it. For my name's sake, or for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. In other words, God will not share his glory in salvation. Ezekiel 20, verse 14. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations, in whom sight I brought them out. Ezekiel 20, verse 22. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name. Ezekiel 20, verse 44. And you shall know that I am Yahweh when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, not, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Or let's even make it clearer. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake. <laughs> we just make that clear. It's not for your sake. We think God saved us because we're so lovable. He saved us because we're so valuable. He looked down from heaven and said, I just can't help myself. Look at him. not what the Bible says. Verse 22, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And, and this is not an exhaustive list. We don't have time to go through an exhaustive list of every time God says, I'm doing this because of my namesake. This is so important. Israel was valuable to God in Exodus. Not because they did anything. Not because of works. Or they were special in themselves somehow. They were valuable because God loved them. And why did God love them? For his namesake. Again, I think Moses figures this out. And God's wrath was coming towards Israel in the wilderness. Moses stood between Israel and God's wrath. In Exodus 32, verse 11, he says, O Lord, 
Why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountain and to consume them from the face of the earth? You know what Moses is pleading here? God, glorify your name. Don't drag your name through the mud. If you kill the Israelites, your name is going to be profaned by the Egyptians. Don't let that happen. In other words, Moses is praying, for the sake of your name, have mercy on Israel. And what happened? Verse 44, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This leads to an extremely important truth that I think the church has forgotten. God will glorify his name. You might be asking, you might feel uncomfortable right now. Does that make God self-centered? Yes. God is radically God-centered. If, if, just read the scriptures. Start in Genesis and go, and you'll see it. That sounds weird to us. That sounds wrong. That sounds bad. That sounds sinful Here's why. It's because we in Western civilization have made selflessness the greatest of all virtues. That's unbiblical. In fact, that, that comes to us through secular philosophy. If you're interested in particular through Immanuel Kant in the 18th century. Selflessness is not the greatest of all virtues. Love is the greatest of all virtues. Let me just prove this to you in one verse. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. If I give away all that I have, what is that? Selflessness. If I give away everything I own, and if I deliver my body to be burned, in other words, if, if, I, if I give everything, even my life, but I have not loved, I gain nothing. Love is the greatest virtue, especially love of God, God-centeredness, worship of God. Love of God is the greatest of all virtues. You know how I know this? Jesus said it was. <laughs> he was asked what the greatest commandment was, and he says this in Matthew 22, verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love active. We replace that with something that is, is not doing. Selflessness. We are to actively love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. Love of God is the greatest of all virtues. Therefore, God is radically God-centered. Why? Because he is good. God is God-centered. But here's an important truth that you need to add to this, and this will help relieve that tension that you're feeling right now. God is the only being, when he makes much of himself, 
when he glorifies himself, when he magnifies his name, that it's to the benefit of others. It's to the good of others. In fact, so much so, it would be unloving if God didn't share himself with us. It would be unloving if God didn't make much of himself. Because God's glory is our greatest good. Westminster's confession of faith, the chief end of man is what? To glorify God. And it's to our greatest good, by or and enjoy him forever. John Piper likes to change it to by enjoying him forever. In other words, God's glory gives us joy. I mean, just look what happens when God magnifies himself. Psalms 106, he saved Israel for his namesake. 1 Samuel 12, he will not forsake Israel for his namesake. Psalms 23, he restored David's soul for his namesake. Again, Psalms 23, he leads David in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Psalms 31, he is our rock and fortress for his namesake. Psalm 31, he leads us and guides us for his namesake. Psalm 109, he will deliver us for his namesake. Psalm 143, he will preserve life for his namesake. Isaiah 48, he defers his anger for his namesake. Ezekiel 36, he will act on Israel's behalf for his namesake. And Moses gets it. Exodus 32, Moses cries out to God to glorify his name. And he answers Moses' prayer by relenting from the disaster that he was going to bring, his wrath that he was going to bring on Israel. Why? For his namesake. And that all makes sense because Exodus 34, verse 6 reveals God's name as Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousand, forgiven iniquities and transgressions and sins. In other words, when God makes much of his name, he makes much of mercy. He makes much of grace. He makes much of slowness of anger. Steadfast love, forgiveness, justice, goodness. And God makes much of his name. It's to our greatest good. It's a side note. When we make much of God's name and we forget ourselves, it's to our greatest good. you want to love other people? Point them to God's glory. It's for their greatest good. True love always is actively pointing people to God's glory. That's why God's radically God-centered. Because he's a God of love. The purpose God saving Israel from slavery is to make much of his name to Israel's benefit. That's what this poem is saying. Let me end just by reading it. The second half, Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, 
I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. You shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God Almighty, help us glorify your name. Help us as a church, Lord, to point people to you and your glory and away from us. Help us to be a light to our culture, to our town that shines your glory. God, I pray that we are a people that are God-centered, that are about your glory, that truly worship you in every aspect of our lives. And I pray that it's attractive, Lord, to people around us. Because you are the only thing that will satisfy our deepest needs and wants. Help us see that. In your son's name, amen.